Well, as we start this morning, I wanted to ask you all a question. What do you need in order to be satisfied in life? Is it food? Is it a bank balance? Is it your family? Is it sex? Is it a particular video game score that you've been trying to achieve? Is it a particular grade point average? Or is it a level of praise from your peers that you expect? What is it that you're striving for? What is it that when you consume it, achieve it, or accomplish it, you'll know that you have arrived and you'll have that aha moment? Ah, I finally got it. I'm satisfied. What is that thing for you? That is enough. Where do you look today to be satisfied? Hopefully, as we look at our passage and read through our text, we will see where our ultimate satisfaction comes from, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. So, if you have a Bible with you today, would you open it with me? And as we read our passage, we're looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went, out, went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So keep that open. We'll be referring to that again and again throughout our um, time this morning. But before we dig into the text, let me just give you a bit of context, a bit of background. Um, as we look at what, what John and thus through the Holy Spirit, we are meant to understand from this passage. John, our author, is the son of Zebedee, brother to James, author of four other books in the New Testament. 
including Revelation. And he's the disciple who was ultimately exiled to the Isle of Patmos near the end of his life. He is writing this text well after the fall of Jerusalem and most likely from Ephesus to a mixed audience of Jews and Greeks. Now, are we to think of this passage merely as a well-loved children's Sunday school story put here by John to teach us that um, we should share our lunch or that um, we should see Jesus as the best doctor possible, the best grocery store that's ever been, provider of everything food-wise? Or is it about being responsible and tidying up so that we're not wasting our food? No, this story was not put here to be part, uh, uh, to be that um, for us. It was put here as part of John's gospel for a very specific reason. To teach us something significant about Jesus and why he came into the world. With the overall intent to show that Jesus really is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one who brings eternal life. So as we look at our text this morning, I want us to see three things that comes out of John's message. Who is Jesus? What does he do for his people and how does he do it? And why does that matter to us today? So first, who is Jesus? Well, to discover this, we have to look to the end of our passage. Look there in verse 14. What does it say? The people, when they, had saw, when they had seen the sign that had been done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, the, look at very closely and note that. They say, the prophet. They're using a title here, like the winner or the president. The crowd has not merely recognized Jesus as one of a long list of prophets, that's how our Muslim friends might see Jesus. That's how they classify Jesus, actually. He's a prophet like Muhammad. He was sent by God as a mouthpiece for the divine, but certainly not divine himself. A prophet might be how the world would like to see Jesus. A prophet is not a threat to anyone, are they? Prophets don't usually set the agenda or claim to be divine. They're only speaking on behalf of the one who sent them. They're not the message, simply the messenger. It would not be strange for the crowd to think of Jesus in this way. One more prophet in a long line of prophets. We see several instances of this way of misidentifying Jesus in the New Testament. Even in John's gospel, we see that. For example, the woman at the well, she said to Jesus, Oh, are you, are you a prophet? The difference here is that this prophet is not only the messenger, but he embodies the message himself. He not only speaks the truth of redemption, but he himself is the redeemer. But the crowd doesn't stop there, do they? They use a more specific reference, setting him apart, setting Jesus apart as the one and only, as the anticipated one. Do you see what they say there after the name that they give him as the prophet? What do they say? They say, who has come into the world as if they've been waiting for him. 
as if his coming was foretold. Well, in fact, his coming was foretold, wasn't it? Who is it that made this prediction? Well, it's none other than one of the most famous prophets himself, Moses. You don't have to turn there with me, but if um, you were later on in the day to look back at Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desire of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let, not, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them, and I will command him. Now, just a few sentences before our passage in chapter 5, Jesus is in the presence of his disciples, and he's been debating this very fact, with the, this fact of his status with the Jewish leaders. He has accused those leaders of not believing Moses' writings about the very thing that he is talking about, about his identity. If the crowd and even Jesus himself portray him as a successor to Moses, how else does John's account of this miraculous event underscore the truth about who Jesus's, what Jesus' identity is? What is Moses most well known for in the Old Testament? He is the one who rescues the Israelites out of captivity from Egypt and he feeds them in the wilderness, doesn't he? He was their redeemer, freeing God's people from slavery and leading them into a right relationship, a right worshipful relationship with God. Therefore, Jesus not only calls the people to a right relationship with God, but also is the way back to God himself. You see, long before the Israelites were taken away into slavery in Egypt, they were already enslaved spiritually to this thing called sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, had decided that they wanted to control the will of God. They knew better. Their material wants were greater than their spiritual needs. In essence, they rebelled against God, tearing apart this relationship between God and man forever. That rebellion is called sin. And the only way to mend it, to mend that breach in the relationship is for a sacrifice to be paid, for the sin to be atoned for, for God's people to be redeemed out of spiritual slavery. The Israelites' physical slavery was simply a material picture of theirs and our spiritual state. By implication, if the crowd is correct and this Jesus is the prophet Moses prophesied about, then he is even greater than Moses himself. He is the prophet to redeem his people through his sacrifice and lead them fully into the presence of God where they will receive eternal life. So how does John signal this idea to his readers? Did you notice in verse 4, John gives us a clue. Only three times in John's gospel does he refer to the time of the Passover being at hand. Once at the beginning of his gospel... When he does his first sign, 
Once at the end, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and he's going to the cross where where he's going to the cross. And then here in the middle, right in our text, John mentions it again. He says, if you remember, well, if you remember the story about the Passover from the Old Testament book of Exodus, God told Moses to command the Israelites to paint the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their houses so that it might be a sign to the people and when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over that household, not taking the life of the firstborn. By pointing to the Passover, John shows us here that Jesus is not only the prophet foretold about, but he is also the redeemer sacrifice himself. He is the one who will satisfy the need for blood. He will pay the sufficient price for his people through his death and thereby also his resurrection, thus his resurrection. Now, our passage is set between two larger discourses in John that um, testify about Jesus' identity. In the chapter before, as I, as I said just briefly earlier, he has said he is the one that Moses, Moses prophesied about that would come. And then in just the, the part of the passage after our text, uh, in John 6, verses 31 to 35, he calls himself the bread of life. The bread that will never leave anyone hungry. Well, the bread or manna that Moses fed God's people, the, the, the Moses fed God's people with, well, that left them hungry the next day, didn't it? It wasn't enough. In fact, there was almost never any left over. Apart from what Peter read, the Sunday, there was some that would, or the, the Saturday, that there would, or the, for, I guess for the Sabbath, there would be some left over for the Sabbath day. But on a daily basis, there was meant to be none remaining, none left over. It was precisely enough. God fed them just enough for the day and for their need and nothing more. Whereas Jesus is saying, I am more than enough. I will be the one to satisfy you. I am the new manna. I will feed you and anyone who comes to me will not ever be hungry. A little later in our service, we'll be reminded of this more accurately. Jesus himself left a sign for us, the celebration of communion. We will symbolically feed on the body and drink the blood as a sign of Christ's new covenant with his people. So who is this Jesus? He is the foretold prophet and the redeeming sacrifice. He is, as, God, as John says, the Messiah. That's what he's pointing us to. So the second thing to get from our text today is, what does Jesus do for his people? And what does, us, what does it show us about him? John has recorded for us in this passage the fifth in the list of his seven signs that point to Jesus as the Messiah. As a recap, does anyone remember what the previous four signs are? First one, Jesus turned water into wine. The second one, Jesus cleanses the temple. The third sign that John points out to us is that Jesus heals the official's son. And the fourth, he healed the invalid at the pool. Well, what sign does Jesus reveal in our story today? The feeding of this massive crowd with five mere loaves and two fish. That's the fifth sign that John identifies today. 
John records in our passage the size of this crowd. Now, it was huge, 5,000 plus, if that is only the men that were counted, as was tradition, the heads of household were, were counted. And we see in verse 10, that's what John records for us, that 5,000 men were counted. Surely there was more that day if you consider the throngs of women and children that would have been with them. But before we get into all the details of the sign, let's look at the principal characters that John has on the stage for us. John places two primary groups of characters in our passage, in our scene today. The first one is the crowd, and the second one are the disciples. In fact, he even calls out two disciples specifically by name, Philip and Andrew. Let's first look at the crowd. We see that they have been following Jesus already. We know from other accounts of this miracle in the other three Gospels, incidentally, this particular miracle is the only one recorded in all four Gospels. So we can see there are some other, uh, feedback, other, other uh, input from the other three Gospels. But we see that Jesus has been teaching them all day. We know that it's near the end of the day, and they have, would have been tired and hungry. In addition to knowing the size of the crowd from John, he also tells us the reason they've been following Jesus. Look there in verse 2. What does John write? He says, A large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Was it because they realized the Son of God was in their midst? Was it because the eyes of their heart had been opened to, to the truth of the Messiah? Was it because they recognized their need for a Savior? Nope. It wasn't any of those things. They were following Jesus around for the free health care he was dispensing. Let me say right here, it is not a bad thing to want or need physical health. It's not wrong for us to seek Jesus to heal us, but it can't stop there. We must realize our need for healing goes much deeper than any physical restoration we would like. We need to understand healing includes spiritual healing that we can receive from God. But it doesn't appear from our text that this crowd was motivated by anything more than their desire for dinner and a show. They seem more like groupies at a concert, always wanting more, never being satisfied, but blindly following some alleged faith healer rather than being earnest followers of the revealed Messiah. Something else we see in this crowd. Once fed, they turn aggressive. Look there at verse 15. John writes, Perceiving that that they were about to come and take him by force. We see this again and again in John's gospel. Crowds that go from curious onlookers to hostile mobs. They become a mob about to grab Jesus and force their agenda, their will onto him. Do you ever do that? I know I do that. Do you ever attempt to use Jesus for your gain? Do you try to force something onto Jesus that is in line with your will without considering what his will might be in any given situation? 
Do you ever wrongly make him a genie in the bottle or your lucky rabbit's foot? If you conjure up the right phrase or pray really hard about something you want, never stopping to ask, what does Jesus want for you? If we do this, then we are no different than this mob. And do you see what Jesus does here? In the second half of the verse, Jesus withdrew. He removes himself from this crowd. He did not concede to their, their will. Now, were they wrong? They wanted to make him king. Isn't Jesus a king? Doesn't he say that? Doesn't the word tell us that he is our king? Absolutely, he is king. But he's king on his terms, not on the crowd's, and he's definitely not king on our terms. If we are God's children, does the Lord hear our prayers? Does he know our circumstances and desire our good? There is no question. The answer is yes. The difference is how it is that we come to him. With a laundry list of demands or a humble heart, broken and filled with trust that he has our best intentions in mind, knowing that we need his salvation and his holiness to replace our brokenness and our rebellious hearts. The other group in our scene is the disciples, whom our author is one of, but he points not to himself in this eyewitness account, but he seems to throw Philip under the proverbial bus. Knowing the answer to his question, because he himself is the answer, look there in verse 5 and 6. Jesus asks Philip, where can, you, where can they get food for this enormous crowd? Jesus knows he is the food they need spiritually, and he knows that he will feed them materially. At the same time, he takes this opportunity to test Philip on how they should meet this very physical need that they find presented them with. Philip has been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. He has witnessed all the previous signs that have gone before. And yet, he can't seem to fathom what Jesus could possibly do in this instance here. Following up Philip's failed attempt, suggesting they buy some bread, but even that wouldn't be enough, he is addressing a physical problem. He's, he's addressing a material solution to a, a spiritual problem they're faced with. But following up Philip's failed answer, Andrew helpfully brings forward a little boy in his lunch. And as if this is any real solution to this overwhelming need they're facing, admitting as much in verse 9, he says, what are they, these loaves and fishes, for so many he even suggests that this is a pathetic offering for this monumental problem. Why, if they, the disciples, had seen the signs and been with Jesus so close to him for all the time that they had, why could they not see the reality that is right in front of them? How often does Jesus do the same thing to us? I'm sure most of us here have at some point see, seen God work in a very real way in our lives, very clearly. Yet, we still do not expect 
He will meet our needs. We don't expect He's going to show up. Nor do we even ask with the appropriate response to our needs. Well, what does Jesus do? He uses this moment again to reveal his identity as the one Moses spoke of. The redeemer of his people by feeding this crowd. He pulls a Moses here. He gives them what they need and even more. He not only feeds them just enough, but he feeds them till they are full, till they are satisfied, till they can't eat another bite. John tells us in verse 11, they ate as much as they wanted. And still, there was more left over. Unlike the time when Moses facilitating the feeding in the wilderness, and there was just enough for each day, Jesus feeds the people and there is an abundance of food. Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, or John, excuse me, John goes on to say in verse 12 that Jesus directs the disciples to collect up the leftovers. They collected 12 baskets full of leftover bread. Clearly, this is a teachable moment for the disciples. There are 12 of them, and they end up each with a basket full. What could be clearer to them than this? This man that they're following, the man who has called each one of them, is the one who has come to satisfy all the material needs they have, but even more, has the power to satisfy their deepest spiritual need, which ultimately is a restored relationship to the God who loves them. Jesus reveals that he is greater than the greatest prophet the crowd would have known. He demonstrates that he alone is the one who provides for his people. He shows that through him, their greatest needs will be met. Moses fed the people not in his own strength, but by God's powerful provision. Moses simply administered the instructions of what God had told the people. Jesus not only gives the instructions, but he actually makes the provision right before their eyes. And notice this is a foreshadowing of the ultimate provision, his very own life on the cross. Moses brought the needs of the people to God. Moses knew, Moses knew he didn't have the power to feed the thousands of Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus sees the need and immediately addresses it. Moses responds to the grumbling Israelites. Jesus blesses God and solves the problem before the need is really even presented to him. What does Jesus do? He satisfies the deepest needs of his people. And how does he do it? By giving them bread, by giving himself the bread of life. So why, why does all this matter? It's a great story. If we've been in church very long, we know we've heard it before. We've grown up in church. But why does it matter? Why does it matter to us today um, here in Percival? Well, the crowd was not satisfied with one sign or two. They were not satisfied with full bellies. They would not have been satisfied with the political solution of Jesus being king. 
The disciples were not satisfied with the truth right before them, in the midst of them day in and day out. Both were so blinded by the material, they couldn't see the deeper spiritual solution that Jesus offered. They could not see their need for a Savior to rescue them from the slavery of their sin. They were both on the right track. They were expecting to be rescued. But clearly, they are looking for the wrong kind of rescue. They're looking for a material rescue. They totally miss the point of the Exodus, don't they? God's provision, whether it was the law given to Moses, the manna in the desert, the escape from Egypt, they were all pointing forward to a greater provision, to the provision of Jesus. And that's the greatest provision for their greatest need. Someone to wipe away their sin and restore their relationship to God, giving them eternal life. That provision will ultimately come in Jesus going to the cross to pay the price required for our sin, for our separation from God. At the very beginning, I asked a question, what satisfies you? What are you looking for in satisfaction? If you're with us today and you're not a follower of this rescuing prophet who is foretold, the Messiah, Jesus, we're really glad you're here with us and you're welcome here today, Sundays in the future, anytime. Chances are you live your life most days like the crowd, chasing after material satisfaction, consuming all that you can but never knowing freedom from the need for more, freedom from the bonds of a broken relationship with our Creator. Seeking a political solution, a social solution, or some solution to an immediate problem. If that's you, come talk to me afterwards or someone who brought you. We'd love to explain more about Jesus and about this one who is the ultimate satisfaction. The one who frees us all who seek him from the entanglements of sin, the bread of life. But if you're someone who for who yearns for spiritual satisfaction, who knows this Jesus, maybe you still find yourself living like the disciples in our text, looking for the next miraculous sign, trying to force Jesus' spirit to meet your physical agenda, looking for the physical bread when you should be seeking the bread of life. He is right in front of you. He has called you to himself. His provision is abundantly more then you need or even deserve. Ask yourself, do my prayers and my requests to God reflect my present need? Am I grumbling like the Israelites were grumbling instead of being shaped by his agenda, by his future kingdom, putting him in control by seeking his will? If that's the case, then an adjustment needs to be made. We need to seek after God's will and see our satisfaction fully and ultimately in Jesus Christ, this bread of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you to bless you and thank you for your great provision for us. When we were separated from you, you provided a way 
of escape, a way to return to you. You have brought us back to you. Lord, we often seek our satisfaction apart from you. We seek it in places and ways that are not honoring to you and don't glorify your name. Forgive us, Lord. You have given us all we need in your Son. Remind us of this that, uh, this week. Remind us of your provision both materially and of our greatest spiritual provision in Jesus Christ. May we feed on him in our hearts and all our thoughts this coming week. In the name of he who is our redeemer, the bread of life. Amen.